All right, here we go. If you have been here for the past few weeks, you have probably noticed this saga. A couple weeks ago, I, I gave this illustration about being in Little League football and being quenched for water. And sometimes you get to the water thing and they put yellow Gatorade in it. And that's nasty and it doesn't quench because it's gross. And we need something that's going to quench. And I talked about how only Jesus can quench our thirst. And last week, some, uh, some amazing person put a yellow Gatorade up here. And I think they might be trying to redeem themselves this week because they put the nectar of the gods up here. Purple Gatorade, praise the Lord. Can I get an amen? Oh, now that will quench. Not as much as Jesus does, but it quenches. That is good. Oh, man. All right. If you have your Bibles, grab them. John chapter 3. We are going to continue in our series in the book of John. And uh, we'll be in verses 16 through 21. So you can begin to turn there. Uh, you know, one of the things that my generation is loving right now is how Disney is taking all of the, uh, our, those animated classics that we grew up with and they're making them live action. And uh, so, so kind of Disney's all the rage right now. I was thinking about Disney movies and thinking about uh, The Little Mermaid. And there is this scene in The Little Mermaid where, you know, Ariel, she uh, sees the prince, sees this man on a boat, and she falls in love with him. Doesn't know anything about him, but he's dreamy, so she falls in love. Whatever. And so, and so she's head over heels, and she's trying to navigate those emotions and figure out, you know, uh, does he love me back? And there's this scene where uh, she's underwater, because she's a mermaid, and she's, there's this flower, and she's picking off the petals, and she says, he loves me, he loves me not. She picks them off. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. And then the last one is, he loves me. She's like, yes, I knew it, he loves me. And she's all excited. You know, she didn't have any other kind of thing to use to help her cope, help her figure out, does she love this man? Does he love her back? So the only thing she had was to pick these flower petals, and the flower petals would declare to her whether or not this man loved her. Sometimes I think we kind of have a similar situation. We're kind of in a similar boat when we ask the question, does God really love me? And I don't think it is just unbelieving people who would ask that question, though I think they would, but I think even followers of Jesus who have been following him for many, many years would continue to ask the question, does God really love me? I think it was a question that nags often at our hearts, our souls, our minds for our whole life. It just nags at us. Does God really love me? Or does, you know, does God just kind of tolerate me? You know, like, like, is God just putting up with me, or does he really love me? Does he just allow me to kind of stick around because I'm just made the bar, I'm just in enough? Does he just allow me to stick around, or does he really love me? I think most of us in this room, except you really, really holy people, besides you guys, all of us, but, but for the rest of us normal people, before we became a Christian, it might have been a question you asked, 
Would God accept me? Would he take me? Because look at my past, look at my life, look at the things that I've done. Would he, could he really love me? But then you kind of, you kind of get over that hump, you go, yes, okay, he can love me. And then you come to know Christ, you're, you're baptized, you're into the church, you're kind of going. And you would think that that question goes away. You would think that that is the, most, that is the simplest truth, that God is love, he loves me, and that question would go away. But yet it doesn't. And maybe for years and years, you're a follower of Jesus, and yet you continue to struggle and to ask this question. Just, I know God is love, but does he love me? I know he's loving, but does he love me? When I look at my life and all the things that I'm about and things that I've done and mistakes I've made, can he still love me? And you don't tell anybody about it. You know, you're scared to, to say, to ask that question because you think, I'm not supposed to be. I'm a Christian at this point. I'm not supposed to ask that question. I'm supposed to know that. That's the simplest question that God is loving, so I should know that. And so I don't really want to talk about it because I'm afraid what people might think, that I'm, I'm doubting or something. And yet we do just that. We doubt. And we have fear and insecurity. And we're unsure. Does God really love me? Time Magazine asked a number of people this question. How do you picture God? Time Magazine, you know, big, huge magazine, asked the question to a bunch of people, how do you picture God? And there were a lot of interesting responses, but many of them reflected this one idea as one respondent said this. God is a lot like he was explained to us as children. He is an older man with a long white beard who is just and often angry at us for sinning. And I fear that many of us, deep down in our hearts, fear that that is who God is. Fear that that is true, that, that while God might have the ability to love some people, he might love those good people that he doesn't truly love me. That more often than not, God is disappointed in me. That he's angry with me. That he's impatient with me. Because I drop the ball too often to change his mind about me. So does God really love me? Does God really love you? Not the ideal you, not the best version of you, not you on your best day, but does God love the you that sits in that chair right now this morning? The actual you, the real you, does he love you? It's going to be the question we seek to answer this morning. Let's learn, turn to our text, John chapter 3, starting in verse 16. The words of our God say this, as John wrote, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. and People love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true 
comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Oh man, someone, they should not have put this up here. This is way too good. John 3.16 is without a doubt the most popular verse, the most well-known verse in the world. Uh, people who know nothing about the Bible, who are not Christians, people who uh, you know, are far from church, if they know anything about the Bible, they know John 3.16. It is the most popular, uh, most uh, uh, known verse that there is. And for good reason, right? Like it is super clear, crystal clear, simple truth that communicates this basic essential point that God loves us. We all in this room know John 3.16. Probably everyone in this room can quote John 3.16. And isn't it interesting, church, that probably every one of you in this room could quote John 3.16. You've never even tried to memorize it. You just know it. You could quote it or get quite close to it. And isn't it interesting that you could know this crystal clear, simple verse about God's love and yet many, most, just be honest, most of us in this room struggle and doubt whether or not God loves me, God loves you. Isn't that interesting? And I think the, the reason might be because we kind of misunderstand all of what John 3.16 is saying to us. So I want to zoom in a little bit on this verse and dig in a little bit. So let's look at it, John 3, 16. It says, for God so loved the world. Now we gotta stop there because a study of the book of John tells us something about what John thinks when he uses the word world. In the Greek, it's the word cosmos, which means everything in the created order, everything that is existing. And every time John, the author of this book, uses that word world, cosmos, it always has a negative connotation to it. It always has a negative bent or negative understanding to it. Meaning that the world for John is not all sunshines and rainbows. That when John thinks about the world, he sees something that is broken. He sees something, a place full of, of rebels against God. He sees a people full of violence and greed and sexual immorality. He sees the world uh, broken and utterly in dismay. And not just broken, but he sees a world that is bad and that is evil. John, when he thinks about the world, he would have known Adam and Eve who, at the very beginning of the world, say, God says to do this. And they say, no, God, we can do it our own way. And they rebel against God and they commit treason against their king. Okay, And so and we have followed in Adam and Eve's footsteps and we've done the same thing, lived life however the heck we want to do it. We live our life our own way, committed treason against the Lord. We are rebels against the king. And so that is John's view of the world. And so when John writes, uh, God so loved the world, when we read that, we should, it should shock us. That's his point. It should be, wait a minute, don't you mean for God loved some, some people or some good people? Don't you think that God, God loves some people who might be worth saving, the best of the best, those who really follow God, those who kind of have their life put together? Don't you mean God loves those people? Because surely you can't mean that God loves the world because look at this place. Because look at this place. It is broken and in utter chaos, full of a bunch of rebellious, treasonous, vile people. Surely you can't mean God loves the world. But that is exactly what John is saying. John is telling us that God loves us while we were broken, 
He loves us in our filth and our vile. He, he loves our, us even when we were in, in this treasonous, rebellious state. To quite, put it quite simply, John is saying God loves sinners. And this was important for us to get. And notice, when, notice the tense when it says God loved. Notice that that is past tense. That's important because he's telling us that God loved the world, God loved you, while you were still sinful, still rebellious, still committing treason against your king. God loved you before you loved him back. He loved you in your sin. It is a shocking, surprising, unexpected thing that God would love sinners. But here's the thing. Talk is cheap. It's easy to say that. It's easy to say God loved the world. Okay, great. But how do we really know? It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to actually mean it. And how can we know? We know that God says he loves us, but how can we know it for sure? If I were to ask you in this room right now, um, the person that loves you the most in the world, whether that be your, your mom or your dad or uh, your spouse or a good friend, whoever that is, whoever loves you the most in the world, and I ask you this question about them, how do you know that person loves you? How do you know? How do you know your mom loves you? How do you know your dad loves you? How do you know your grandparents love you? How do you know your spouse loves you? Do you know what none of us in this room would say? Well, it's because they tell me every day. No wife would say, the reason I know my husband loves me is because every day he leaves for work, before he shuts the door, he says, love you, honey, bye. That's how I know. No, you wouldn't say that. You wouldn't believe that, even if you did. The way you would answer the question, does my spouse, does my mom, whoever love me, is you would tell me, the reason I know they love me is because they did this or because they do this. Because I know they love me because they do this for me. You might say something like this. Yes, my husband loves me because even though he is incredibly busy, he takes great care to make time for me. Or you might say, yes, I know my parents love me. Because they were always there when I need them, no matter how bad I screwed up. You see, you can point to the things in your life that they have done for you or do for you that isn't just telling you that they love you, but there are these markers, there are these evidences of their love. You don't, just, you don't cling to those words unless there is something to back up those words. You don't cling to the, the I love you statements unless there is meat on those bones. To back it up. So then the question is, how do we know that God loves you? How do you know? Because he says he loves the world? No. For God so loved. That's what we read at the beginning, for God so loved. But we got to notice something here. Notice the word so. We can take this two ways. God so loved the world, and I've often heard preachers say, well, that means God just so, it's so big, right? It's like, it's like my, my, I have two little daughters, Eden and Scarlett. I got another one, but she can't talk yet, so she wouldn't do this. But I, Eden and Scarlett, imagine they come to me and say, Daddy, 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 you won't believe it. Guess what happened? We saw this huge, giant, big spider. 
and it was scary. And I'd go, oh my gosh, how big was it? And then Scarlett would poke in and go, it was so big. How big? So big. Like, like that's like an exact science, so big. So we could understand this passage to mean that God so loved the world, talking about the magnitude of his love, like how big it is. But that's not what the word so means here. Another way we could translate it would be to say, in this way. And it would read like this. For God, in this way, loved the world. See, it's not speaking to the magnitude or amount of God's love. It is actually speaking of the way in which God loves. Speaking to the evidence or the markers of how he loves the world. You see, God isn't just stating that he loves it. He's showing it through his actions. So what action is that? For God in this way loved the world that he gave his only son. God in this way loved the world that he gave his only son. Let me ask you a question. What is the most precious thing in the world to you? I want you to think about that for a moment. What is the most precious thing in the world to you? For some of you, it would be your kids, it would be your spouse, it might be your parents, it might be a dear friend, it might be some object, I don't know. But what is the most precious thing in the world to you? And whatever that thing is, it is a fraction of the uh, fraction compared to how precious Jesus was to the Father. You see, for an eternity before the world was created, before Genesis 1-1 where God speaks the world into existence, there had already existed an eternity past that had no beginning. And God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit had been in this intimate, perfect relationship for all of that eternity past with no beginning. See, the Son is the most precious thing to the Father. It is a love on a level and a preciousness that we cannot comprehend or understand. And so get this, God creates the world, right? He makes the world, he speaks it all into existence. And what does the world do for God? For God to say, thank you for creating the world, the world says, God, we want nothing to do with you. We want to go our own way and do our own thing. We rebel against him. God doesn't shake his finger in disapproval. He doesn't send lightning bolts to fry us, treasonous fools. Instead, God takes and sends his most prized, most special possession, his one and only son. And he sends that son into this treasonous, vile world, not to be honored, not to be praised as he should have been, but he sends him to be poor, to be hungry, to be despised, to be rejected, to be betrayed by his friends, to be tortured, to be mocked, laughed at, and to be brutally executed. God sent his most prized, special possession, his son, into a world that he knew would hate him so that people might believe in his son and in so doing would be able to spend eternal life with God in paradise forever. You see, we can know God's love it's for me, it's for us. Because one, while we were still sinners, while we were still broken, he loved us. And then he proves it by giving his most special possession. 
gives us the most perfect son that we might believe in him and become sons too. You see, my wife knows that I love her because sometimes I do the dishes. Because sometimes I pick up after myself. And that screams, I love you to her. But we can know that God loves us. You particularly can know God loves you when you remember that he gave his most prized, special possession that he had. He gave it up in exchange for you. You see, Jesus did not die. This is important, and we messed this up. Jesus did not die in order to make it possible for God to love you. Jesus did not die in order to make it possible for God to love you. Jesus died because God already loved you. And that is a fundamental difference. He didn't die to make you lovable. He loved you and so he died. And that changes everything. See, Jesus' death is God displaying his love for everyone to see. He doesn't just tell us he loves us, he demonstrates it. Because here's the thing, when someone just tells you they love you, when God, if he were just to say, I love you, man, that's sentimental. Like, that's nice, that's sweet. It's like receiving a card in the mail saying, I love you. Oh, hey, great, that's nice. It gives me the warm fuzzies. But that's the fate. Like, that doesn't have a weight. And so God's love, he's not just giving the sentimental love to us. I love you guys, it's all gonna be good. It's not what he's doing. He's demonstrating it by giving up the thing that means the most in the world to him. He gives it up so that he can get you. But that's not all. Let's keep going. That's 316. Now we got a bunch of other verses to look at. Verse 17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Y'all will be spoiled. You know, the Bible has, I think, the perfect name, nickname, reference to the devil. I think it's so fitting, and I think it help, it's helpful. The Bible calls the devil the accuser. You see, because what our enemy loves to do is to come and whisper in your ear the exact thing you need to hear to make you feel like a failure to make you feel like a loser, to make you feel like someone not worth anything, not lovable and not worth God's time. You see, our enemy wants you to feel condemned, unworthy. He wants you, as someone who believes in Christ, to feel unworthy and condemned, to feel like your belief isn't good enough. To feel like you're almost there if you just work a little harder. You see, the enemy wants you constantly evaluating your own performance, your own ability to follow God well. He wants you looking at your life trying to figure out if you believe enough, if you're good enough, if you've repented hard enough, if you've gone to church enough. And he wants you to think the answer is no and that God can't love you until you get your act together. But I think verse 18 has this really clear message for us, okay? So I want you to hear this. Verse 18 says, whoever, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. 
That's super simple. Believe in Jesus, not condemned. Not whoever believes well or enough. Not whoever goes to church enough. Not whoever is a good person. Not whoever is good, but whoever believes will not be condemned. Because verse 17 tells us that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. God did not send his son into the world so that he could weed out and find out all you people who don't take him seriously, who fail, find you guys and squish you under his thumb. He didn't send his son into the world to condemn you. He didn't send his son into the world to weed you out. God is not just on the, on the prowl looking for those he can judge and send to hell. Instead, he is looking for people he can rescue and save and love. Because this is a huge problem. This is a huge problem in the church today. I could tell you story after story after story. I could tell you about my own life and my own struggle of believing that God loves me. And I could tell you about so many other people who come to me with a singular problem. People who have been a Christian for a long time. And they come to me and they say, Brent, I don't know that God loves me. I say, how long have you been a Christian? 20 years. How long have you struggled with this? 19 I say, Brent, I'm too much of a mess. I feel defeated. I feel condemned. I feel like I'm too far gone for God to love me. I've made these mistakes before I was a Christian. I made these mistakes after I was a Christian. I did these things. I messed up. And now I just feel like I'm too far gone and God can't love me. So, so I want to ask this question. Why do you think people feel that way? And there are many of you in this room. I just want you to be honest with yourself because you know you feel this way. Why do you feel this way? I think... The reason so often that we feel condemned and beat up and like God can't love us is not the fault of our misunderstanding of the Bible or something like that. I think it's the fault of the church. I think it's our fault. I think the way we treat people when they're honest with how they're struggling has created this problem in you see, instead of the church being a hospital for sinners, where we come up and bandage one another and say, man, that's a deep wound right there. You need more than a bandage. But you know what? I got a deep wound too, so let me show you how to bandage that thing up. Instead of saying, hey, brother, you're limping. Let me put you on my back and carry you for a while because here in about a week, I'm going to need to put you down so you can carry me. Instead of being a place where, where we're all in the same boat and like, hey, man, life's tough following Jesus is hard and there's a lot of wounds and a lot of mess going on come on in and join the mess and we'll heal each other up instead of being like that instead of being a place for sinners we have become a place where we've got to say the right stuff wear the right clothes say the right words we walk in how you doing man everything's great how are you how's the family how's the kids and you just lie through your teeth because you got in a big fight with your wife on the way to church you cussed her out you yelled at your kids you beat them half to death and you're and you're you're, you're about to lose your job you're looking at bad stuff on the internet but man everything's going great how are you the lord is good got my tithe right here and we just lie because we don't want anybody to see what's really going on in our messed up life. We put on a good face and we play the part. But why do we do that? Why do we do this? I think it's because when people have been vulnerable and shown their wounds, 
we didn't want to see them. I think when people showed us their mess, it was uncomfortable. It was scary. We didn't know what to say. We didn't know how to act. We didn't know how to help. We just kind of freeze. We don't want to, and we don't want to deal with that mess, right? Like, we, we don't really want that here. We just want to come to church, learn a little bit, feel good about ourselves, and go home. I don't want to deal with your mess. I got enough of my own. So you pretend like you're okay. I'll pretend like I'm okay. We'll be okay. Just want my dose of Jesus for the week and get out. I don't have to deal with all this other stuff. You see, I think the reason we feel condemned and feel like God doesn't love us is because the church hasn't loved us in our mess. It's the reason why just recently I had a couple in our church come talk to me. And we're sitting in my office and they are pouring out their hearts to me. They are crying, telling me about their family and their struggles and, and kind of what's been going on and, and how they've had to endure this hurt for a long time and this pain. And, and with tears in their eyes, they said this to me. And it broke my heart. We have wanted our church family for so long to know about this and to be able to pray for us and encourage us and help us but we haven't been able to tell them because we don't think they would want to hear it. And we don't know what, how they would react. Church, that can't be. That can't be. But then they told me something encouraging. They said, but I think it's beginning to change and we might be ready to share soon. Can I tell you what we've got to do together to build around here? What we've got to come together to build together in this place. And we can't just say this. We've got to mean it and we've got to do it. We can't, we've got to be a place where we can take our masks off. A place where we show our wounds and our scars. And that when we do that, we can do it knowing that the people around us are not going to look down their nose. They're not going to condemn us. They're not going to shun us. They're not going to look at us differently. They're not going to go, I didn't know about that, and go run off and tell a bunch of other people. We have to be a place where we can be honest about our pain, honest about our doubts, honest about our fears. We can be honest about the nights that we cry ourselves to sleep, honest about our own insecurities, honest about our marriages that are falling apart, honest about the abortion that no one knows about, but I gotta tell somebody, but I'm too scared to see what they would think. We've gotta be honest. See, we can be honest and we can take off the mask only. You can only be vulnerable and only take off the mask and only be real when you know that when you do so, you will be met with grace and patience and understanding and help and love. That you will be met with a gospel that is robust enough and big enough to take you into it and heal you and be safe. That you're not going to be met by someone who says, man, I don't get that at all, but rather you're going to be met with somebody and go, man, I get exactly what you're going through because I've been there too. Let me bandage you up. You see, we must be a place where it is safe to be fully known. Fully known. We must be a church where you can know if you are fully known, you will be fully loved. Can I tell you why this matters so much? 
It's for right or wrong. Here's, here's why it matters so much. Listen to me, church. The way we treat people in their mess is the way they will believe God will treat them in their mess. The way you love someone Scars and all is the way they will believe God will love them, scars and all. You model how God loves us. And the reason we often doubt God's love for us is because the church has done a bad job of loving each other. We fix that and we fix the problem of doubting God's love. If we can't handle their mess, people will continue to believe that God can't handle it either. If it's too much for you, it will be too much for God. They will think, if those people who have their own messes can't love me and help me, then there is no way that God can. But notice verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. You see, sin is like mold that loves the darkness. It loves being in secret. See, the enemy wants you to be hidden in the dark, keep everything secret, keep everything bottled up, keep everything closed in, keep the hurt hidden, because if no one finds out, then they can't stop loving you. But the only way to be healed is to come into the light. The only way to find new life and healing is to bring all that mess into the light. It'll it'll heal your guilt. It'll heal your shame. It'll heal your doubt. And you will remember God's love for you. There's a story that I love. That I think it took place in the, the hills, the hollers of Kentucky where all these coal mines are. You know, one of those towns where, where everyone knows that when you grow up, you got one job. You either, you either move away or you go work in the coal mine. And so there was this young man who had finally become of age and, and he went to work in the coal mine like everyone did. And he wasn't in there long until there was a collapse. It was a big accident. And he got crushed by some stuff and was paralyzed from the neck down. And so then he spends the rest of his life lying in a bed in his house, looking out the window, watching the seasons change, watching houses get built, watching businesses come in and get built, watch people walk by the street and watch the kids grow up over the years. He had to sit and watch all of that happen while he sat in his bed. Until one day, there was another man who came to visit him. And this man said to him, he says, I hear that you are a religious man, and how is it that all of this bad stuff can happen to you, and yet you still think Jesus loves you? Don't you sometimes doubt God's love? And this man laying in his bed, paralyzed from the neck down, he said, yes, sometimes I doubt. He says, sometimes Satan comes into this room and he sits right there on the bed and and he points out the window and he shows me all the things my friends have and all the things that I've missed out on and all I didn't get I wasn't able to get married and have kids and grandkids Uh, my health he points out all these things and the devil looks at me says does God really love you and he said I take Satan's hand and I walk him to a place called Calvary called Golgotha the place of the skull I show him the nail-pierced hands of Jesus and the nail-pierced feet and the, the thorn on his brow. And I point up to him and I say, doesn't he love me? Doesn't he? You see, the evidence in your life that God's love for you has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your life going well or not well. 
It's not because your cars work and you got a good house. That's not how you know God's love you. Because everything's nice and calm and peaceful. That's not how you know. And you don't also not know because everything's falling apart around you. That's not the evidence. The only marker you have and the only marker you need to know, does God love me? Not just is he loving, but does he love you and does he love me? Is the mark of the scars on his hands and on his feet. That he bears the scars from the nails that they drove through his hands. That he bears the the scars. That is the only sign you need when you doubt When you think, does God really love me? You must remember that God gave up his most precious possession and allowed him to be brutally tortured and executed and separated from him. That he gave that up for you. And when you doubt, could he still love me? You gotta go, you gotta go walk up that hill, you gotta look at the cross, you gotta see him hanging there and say, Of course he does. Because he did that for me before I loved him, before I knew him, while I was still loving my sin, he did that for me. Doesn't he love me? You see, at any moment, while Jesus hung on the cross, he could have called down thousand angels to rescue him. At any, you know, they mocked him. They said, if you were really the son of God, you could just climb on down that cross. And don't you know he could have? With one word, he healed the, the sick. And with one word, he raised the dead. With, with one word, he, he walked on the water. He fed 5,000. Don't you know? With one word, he could have made it all stop. And so what held him on that cross? It wasn't the nails. What held him on that cross was his love for you. So church, when you doubt, when you think, how could God love me? Look to the cross, because he doesn't just say he loves you, he proves it. He demonstrates it. You don't have to grab a flower like Ariel and say, does he, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not, and hope for the best. You don't have to go on this roller coaster ride of feeling loved and accepted and then not and loved and then not and loved and not. You don't have to do that. You don't have to guess. You don't have to pluck flowers. You can know for certain. Does God love you? Look to the bloody cross and you tell me if he loves you. Because if that's not love, I don't know what is. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. And there are two people in this room. There are people in this room who have never experienced or known your love because they've never believed in you. And because they've not believed in you, they stand condemned in their sin right now. And if they were to die, they'd bust hell wide open. Your word's clear about that. And so, God, those people, we pray you would open their eyes and open their ears and help them to see a love like they've never known. That if they would believe, not get their life right, not clean up, not repent hard enough if they would believe in the name of the only son of God who was crucified for them and raised from the dead if they would believe they would have eternal life right now in this moment without lifting a finger all they have to do is lift their eyes and look at you so God the people in this room who do not believe God would you give them grant them belief that they would be saved and God for the for the many of us in this room right now help us to stop lying to ourselves help us to stop putting the mask on and covering it up help us to be vulnerable and honest and say you know what i really really struggle knowing and believing that god could love me 
I know that the Bible says it. I know that God is love, but I have a really hard time thinking that God loves me because I look at my failure. I look at my life. I look at these things. and I think, How can he love me? I've messed up so much. God, this morning, would you encourage those people and show them that you indeed love them because you sent your only son. While they were still sinners, you sent your son to die for them. If that is you this morning and you need it, we would love to hug your neck and just pray with you this morning. Sometimes hearing that's prayed over you is so helpful. If you need to come here and just kind of kneel down at the front and pray, it'd be great. There's people on the side that would love to pray with you. If you need that, we want to just pray with you. If someone in your life that you love doesn't believe, you just want to pray for them. We want to help. We want to pray for that with you. Wherever you're at this morning, stand and sing because God's love is so real to you or come and let us pray with you and help you and love you well. Respond however the Lord would lead you. God, give us the strength to do that. Christ, and we pray all people said, let's stand.